Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 80 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions' industry-leading Evo shared storage servers come with a perfect suite of core features you'll love, like built-in media asset management and powerful integrations for Adobe, Resolve, Avid, and FCP10. They've even made it easier to work from home with their new remote editing tool, Nomad. Visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and sign up for a demo today. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Crispin Green ACE about editing four seasons of Game of Thrones, including two episodes of the last season. Green has also edited the TV series Killing Eve, Strike Back, Upstairs Downstairs, Doctor Who, and many others. We did this interview on Skype, and the interview starts as Crispin notices the moviola over my shoulder. I like your uh, moviola in the background. (laughs) (laughs) Reminds me of the old days. You started early enough to have cut on film. What was the transition like for you? It was a bit scary at first. I did commercials, you see, first, when Avid and Lightworks, well, Lightworks actually was first. Mm -hmm. Especially in the UK. Yeah, in the UK, really. Uh, And that's kind of what I learned on, I learned nonlinear on that, really, rather than Avid. And then Avid kind of took over. So I had to learn that as well. So it was a bit frightening at first, but I actually borrowed a Lightworks from someone. (laughs) <laughs> so so I could sit there and play around and go, uh, press that, will it all disappear? <laughs> After a while, it was fine, and it is great. I love it now. I'm going to start out with uh, a couple of questions that I got from uh, editing fans, actually. I asked some people, hey, I got Crispin Green. What, what do you want me to ask him? Robbie Mann asked a question that I would typically ask anyhow, which is what kind of time frame did they have per episode before final approval, and did that change much from season to season? The way they did it was a little bit different to a normal production. When I first started working on it, season four, there were three editors and one extra editor who did uh, the odd episode because there was like ten. So we'd do three each. Uh, and then Jesse would do the odd episodes. But we all started together. Rather than they shoot a block and you're, you're there doing that and then you finish it and then the next editor starts, we were all there together because of the uh, logistics, I guess, of it, how they worked it out. You know, they'd go to Iceland, they'd film everything, all the episode stuff while they were away there. So we three editors had to be on all the time. It was kind of different, but I was on it for usually, it was usually about seven months from first day of rushes right through to my last day. But of course, they were still working on it, doing track laying, sound mixing, VFX was still being finished off. But for me personally, it was usually about seven months. Uh, And you've cut a ton of TV uh, in the UK, especially. That would be uh, unusual, wouldn't you say, (laughs) for a seven month episode? (laughs) Yeah, it would. <laughs> it was a, it was the longest thing that I'd ever, ever worked on in one in one hit. Uh, usually they're ten weeks. Usually you'd do two episodes rather than three. And Game of Thrones ended up us doing two episodes each because each season they got more and more ambitious. There was one season where we it was just overload, and we were finding that we were getting double amounts of rushes on days, and we just physically couldn't (laughs) do it all ourselves so they decided to change it that was the season of Hodor and his door we had to get Jesse who usually does the odd episode out he uh, helped me out on that and also Katie and Tim because it just got a bit too much because of the ambition of the episodes they got just bigger and bigger so one of the reasons for the long time for an episode is because of kind of the block shooting of it, as you were explaining. Yeah. You, know, you go to one location and then they shoot maybe scenes for six or seven episodes, but then you're waiting for other scenes for your episodes. That's right, yeah. I mean, the, because they did shoot a lot of stuff, you were never really sitting around. But some days I might not have any rushes. That, of course, gave me time to go back over 
what I'd done. So it was quite nice, really. It worked out pretty well, but it just meant that we were all away because we were in Belfast, so we were away from home for uh, quite a long time. Uh, and they had an in-house um, grade as well at Yellowman, which is the post house where we cut everything in uh, Belfast. Uh, so that, that would go through that overnight, and then we'd get our rushes in the morning. But we weren't normally asked to uh, show cuts every day. It was normally an end-of-the-week thing, depending on the director, really. They were all watching it as we were going along, but not every day. Here's a good question from Emily Drummond. Ask if he has any particular scenes that he edited that stood out to him or that he really enjoyed the edit and why. There's many. I did like the Rockmen attack when Tyrion and um, Jorah were on the boat going down the river. I don't know if you remember the, that scene, but they get attacked by Rockmen. What was that? I just liked the way it built because it was all very calm and beautiful as they're floating down the river and they're all theorizing about stuff. And you could see the odd ruin, which were all brilliant CGI additions, which you couldn't tell. You know, they just looked like ruins that they were going past. And then the closer they get, the more you feel danger as, you know, something's going to happen. <laughs> and it did. And why do you think that the audience felt danger at that point? Because of the pacing and you're like, something's got to so, happen yeah. or the music? I mean, music obviously has got a big part to play in it. But I think it was because of the calmness. Of, uh, it was like the build, the slow build. And you feel quite nice as they're going down this lovely river. <laughs> and then the ruins are getting more and more around them. I think, you know, the audience knows that something's going to happen, but it was just when. <laughs> audiences are becoming more and more sophisticated. Yeah. And you've got to realize, especially in a, in a show like this, where you're like, there's constant action and violence and stuff. And for this moment, this pastoral moment to happen, you're like, oh, this can't be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But they, you, you need to, you totally need to have that. That's what, why I, I really enjoyed cutting all of Game of Thrones, because the balance of really awful things happening and huge action sequences but they're all moments the balance was great because you really had time to invest in the characters as well it did calm down it wasn't a total action fest which was great i thought and i think that's its success really because you really invested in the characters like one of the other scenes that i really enjoyed was from the last season was when um brian gets knighted by Jamie, even watching it again, I get a tear in my eye when she, it's just the way she looks at him. Because <laughs> you know the, you know, their story runs past you and you, if you know it, you just remember all their story while he's doing it and uh, it was just really touching. I didn't even want to be a knight. I'm no king, but if I were, I'd knight you ten times over. You don't need a king. Any knight can make another knight. 
I'll prove it. Kneel, Lady Brienne. <sighs> Do you want to be a knight or not? Kneel. to be just. In the name of the mother, I charge you to defend the innocent. Arise, Brienne of Tarth, a knight of the Seven Kingdoms. kingdoms. I love that idea that uh, just thinking about it brings a tear to your eye because I've definitely had that thing happen when I'm cutting where yeah. you get so involved yourself. I mean, you're building Absolutely. it. You know how fake it is because you're constructing yeah. it yourself. Yeah. And yet it is so emotionally powerful. Yeah. It happens to me a few times, you know, not all the time, obviously, but <laughs> otherwise I'd be a blubbing wreck. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, it, it, it does happen. And uh, you're right, you, you do, you know, how can it be? You know, you're just, it's just a screen, but you've invested so much time in them. They're like real to you, almost, aren't they? <laughs> I think the people who get into editing or who become good enough that they succeed like you is is a certain sense of empathy that if you can't feel with the characters you can't do your job that's right that's that's absolutely right and i think because the, the characters are really the main uh, thing for an audience you've got to invest in them you've got to believe in them otherwise you know you you just don't care about them so why why bother watching it you know if you if you're not if you don't invest in the characters, it's the teamwork, it's the directing, the writing and everything. But our uh, job is to kind of bring it all together, isn't it? Katie once said, it's a bit like a funnel. <laughs> you know, we're at the end of it and there's all these thousands of other people that have put it all together and it's coming into us. And it's, it's no wonder it does affect us, you know, emotionally as we're, as we're working away. But I like that. I think that's great. If you can do that to you, then it's got to be good, isn't it? Yeah, and does that happen with you for action sequences? I know sometimes when I'm editing action sequence, I can feel my heart start to race some. Well, like, yeah, and you start, uh, yeah. you're actually actually editing faster. You know, yeah. like, give me the next shot. Okay, then. The... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just rewatched the Winterfell episode, season eight, episode one, if I'm not yes. correct. Yeah. And that was one of yours. That was um, what, yeah, I did one and two of those. Uh, one of the things that I want to ask you about was a, an emotional moment, which, uh, not an emotional, I, it's it's more like subtext and understanding of story, because you said you've been on for four years. Um, yeah. There's a great early scene in Winterfell where they're trying to figure out what they're going to do, and here's what we here's the plan. Yeah. Everyone's talking, uh, John's up there, and a lady, a girl, uh, challenges John about being chosen king, and now oh, yeah. what is he? And I instantly wanted to go, stand up and be a king and tell her something great, right? But you didn't do that immediately. Yeah. That's what happens in the scene. But first, 
he looks unsure. And then he looks over, you know, to multiple people and everybody else is like, what's he going to say? Yeah. How could this woman challenge him? Was that something that you remember as being scripted or did you feel like there needed to be a delay before he spoke very strongly about being king? It was a scripted moment, but it took quite a while to get to that moment. It was again about balance of, you know, should he should he say it straight away? He's got all these other things going on in his mind about Danny and uh, what's he going to, you know, and his sisters. And uh, so I, I think it, it was it was a kind of uh, group uh, decision, really, to to uh, hold that back slightly mm-hmm. from him. Uh, saying yes i don't think there was that much in it i think it was just a a thing to try and get the audience to imagine what's going through his head rather than just coming out and saying yeah okay then (laughs) we were trying to get it to he's having flashbacks in his mind without actually showing a flashback (laughs) so so the audience are doing it for him really that that's what we were trying to do other moments in in that episode specifically because that's the one that's freshest in my mind is just a lovely sense of not trying to like you said that there's a a pace to it the the, the whole episode starts with a boy kind of running yeah. through the town to see the the approaching army or the army as they go through and there's dialogue but there's space between the dialogue and it's not just show the the big imposing moments it's lingering on people's faces and things like that um how talk to me about building some of those scenes the whole um idea of the first two episodes was really trying to for first of all the first episode one was because the big moment where all the characters that have been all over the game of thrones world as separate things and we've been party to all their stories they're actually all coming together in one place or nearly all of them. <laughs> uh, so a lot of them, you know, they haven't seen each other. Like John and Aya haven't seen each other since uh, she was like a child, basically. And there's all that going on. But what the whole first two episodes were, we were trying to do uh, was to build that sense of doom that's coming with the White Walkers, which episode two ends with the horse's foot on the. Uh, outside Winterfell. Uh, so I think it was, that's what we were aiming to do. So it wasn't It wasn't ever meant to be a rushed, you know, there's a big set piece, of course, the dragon ride, uh, which was great. I think they were, I, I keep going to say gentle, but they weren't particularly gentle. But I wouldn't say that about Game of Thrones at all. But uh, do you know what I mean? It was kind of uh, a slow build over two episodes that all all these characters meeting up again for su- after such a long time, they're building towards this huge battle that's going to happen. And they know it's going to... They don't think they're going to survive it. I've heard it described like a, a slingshot. You're pulling back, you're pulling back, you're yes. pulling back. And yeah, psh, it is, yeah. So the first two episodes are the are the pulling back of the yeah. slingshot. And I, and I kind of enjoyed that. I mean, because I, I do like characters. I, I mean, I, I do love cutting action as well, but... Um, I do like uh, the granular type of thing with uh, characters and drawing the audience in, really, and uh, making them believe what's happening to them. You mentioned uh, the dragon ride, and I had a, a note here about the dragons. What kind of previs are you getting, or how are you cutting a scene like that that is so heavily visual effects? I've done uh, quite a bit of CG on Doctor Who before, uh, and a few other things, but never as big as... Um, Game of Thrones before. They do previs them very well, to be honest. They do uh, uh, sort of rough animations of how the scene should play out. Uh, obviously, it, it changes, but they do that so you've got a guide. And then when they go and shoot the shots, you know kind of where they go. It's a bit like doing animation almost. But of course, you've got the live action elements where they shoot everything on, on a huge, you know, in a huge green screen studio on motion controlled cameras and stuff. Uh, so it's quite hard to 
visualize it but when you start getting the scene together you you get bits and pieces where you can add in a background and i have a really good assistant who is great at combining bits let's let's give his name or her uh steph mccutcheon her name is in fact she was second assistant when on my first block but then she was made up to uh first and she stayed with me uh all the way through um she's great really good you know, it got so I didn't have to ask her to do stuff. She just knew <laughs> and did it. But no, she was great at compositing uh, bits and trying to make it. Because when you show it to someone, it's hard for them to envisage it. If it's hard for us, it's even harder for them. So especially when it's part of the story. So you kind of need to have it as good as you can get it. After a while, they do animations of the dragon like basic animations. As time goes on, you get more and more pieces that you could combine. So by the time the episode is completely shot, you've got a sort of a scene that you can show. You know, it'll have backgrounds on it and animated pieces in it. So then the producers can make a measured decision, really, on how the scene is. When you're cutting a scene like that, do you feel the need or do you feel the ability to ask for, um, oh, I wish I had a close-up. That wasn't in the, pre, in the previs, but I really need a moment. Oh, yeah. They're, they're very open to things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So I've done it a few times. You know, not just me. You know, the director might watch it and say, oh, yeah, I think we need, we need something to happen there, and maybe we can do that or pick that up. That's a constant thing. And that, and that again, helps, you know, the more we can put it together as a – as a rough sequence, the more they can see things like that, or we can say, yeah, we need something extra. Usually when I give these little examples, it's not because I'm so concerned about the example, but I just love how we can talk about editing from an example. Um, one of the things that I really liked, I was paying attention to, was in that opening scene in Winterfell where the boy's kind of looking at the, the army coming in, he climbs a tree, mm. and the camera's close on him, and you hear... Just before he turns, you hear a voice from that yeah. side that kind of motivates him. Just to make him turn, yeah. Yeah, I, I love that. Was that a scripted thing? Was that something where you nah. felt like it would be great to have him motivated so then I could cut to the army coming in? Yeah, I mean, that's a thing that happens often. You know, you, you, you uh, cut the scene together and somebody looks and it just needs a little something, you know, a crack of a twig or whatever. So that they don't really script things like that or you know if it's written down it might be the boy sees the army <laughs> but the way it's shot you know always ends up different from the script really not hugely but that's a thing that we'd we would have put in because sound, sound is a hugely important thing so we do a lot of work on sound before it even goes to uh, the track layers and sound department it all helps towards the world doesn't it audio in fantastic worlds I think really helps sell because sometimes they can, I think without audio, they can feel really fake. Yeah. Sometimes it's even the, the, the smallest of things like, uh, say you've got the dragon flying along and it does this. If you put a little rustle or a set or some sort of movement sound, it, it suddenly it becomes more real. Uh, so they're tiny little things that you wouldn't really notice. I mean, to give the example, um, if, if somebody slaps someone on the face and you don't have the sound for it, it's not so good, is it? <laughs> so, so that's the way I look at it. I go, yeah, well, even the tiny little, you know, like this sort of thing. A little poke. If there's a little tiny sound for it, it doesn't have to be big. It just brings it all um, into focus, I think. Well, the interesting thing with that example of the dragon shoulder turn is you can't go to a a sound effects library and go dragon <laughs> shoulder turn you know you got to find that's right yeah what are you looking for when you're looking for a dragon shoulder yeah, turn yeah i know mind you um after a while game of thrones sound effects library as you can imagine got quite large so there were things like that yeah. <laughs> in there after you know after a few seasons right i mean that's one of the nice things you said you started on season four by then at least you've got a huge palette of sounds well, and yeah it was great, really, because, I mean, it must have been much harder for on uh, season one because they, they didn't have anything. Also, don't forget, I had four, uh, three seasons worth of Ramage music, 
that's what we would use as temp. We didn't need to go hunting around in other movie soundtracks. Very occasionally you might go, well, there's nothing exactly right for this, so we'll steal something from as a temp, mm -hmm. you know, to give a, a feeling. But mostly the music was already in a big bank of uh, music that Ramin had already done for previous episodes, so that saved a lot of uh, hunting. I mean, you still have to hunt through his stuff but uh, to find the right things. But uh, Sure. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Crispin Green. Whether you're working from home or in your facility, your media has to be secure, organized, and accessible by your whole team. Studio Network Solutions' Evo shared storage servers now include Nomad, an easy-to-use utility to help media production teams work from home, on the road, or anywhere in the world. Evo shared storage servers provide ultra-fast performance for real-time 4K and even 8K editing. Each Evo comes with built-in media asset management software, so you can easily search, tag, and preview all your storage. Evo also features backup and sync tools, so you always know your media and projects are protected, plus powerful integrations to improve your workflows in Adobe Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid Media Composer, and Final Cut Pro 10. Visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and discover a better way to store, share, and organize your media. As a special offer for my listeners, you can get 10% off a new Evo system by going to studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and signing up for an online demo today. And now back to my interview with Crispin Green. On other TV shows that you've edited, are they largely not composed and you just you have you have pieces from the the composer that they create and then you put them in and you actually finish it that's the finished music or are you temping with the composer and then they actually compose for each episode um with doctor who the music is it's all composed but we because each episode is kind of a standalone story you had some music that was usable but mostly it would be new music that we would take from other movies or other TV programs. Uh, like, for instance, uh, there was one Doctor Who I did where we it had a little girl in it, and we used a lot of um, Harry Potter music. We give that as a guide. Some composers don't really like that because they've, you know, we've already said this is the style we like, but most of the music, is a, it helps them, uh, especially when they don't have much time. <laughs> <laughs> it's only when it's a long-running series that it's got a bank of music or I have done in the past a, uh, a few episodes of Strike Back, which is a, a long-running series, and that has a bank of music. When you go back and work on that, there's already music there. Yeah, that's kind of what I was... I've, I've heard of other shows that have much, you know, that have a faster turnaround. Obviously, if you've got seven months, you know, you can get composed yeah. music. But some, you know, some of the weekly serialized TV shows... They they can't compose that fast, so they just make a bunch of music. And here's some, you know, yeah. here's some tension music, and here's some action music. And well, normally most of the things I do on there composed at the end. Most of the stuff we just temp up. Mm -hmm. It was the same with Game of Thrones as well. We weren't getting uh, Ramin only composed the music after we'd uh, locked the picture. I mean, he'd be working on it. Obviously, he'd be seeing cuts. But um, we didn't really get anything in advance, any new stuff in advance from him. Sometimes you do that. The job I've just done, uh, the composer was involved quite early on, which was great, actually. It was very helpful. He was starting to give us some basic tracks as we were um, editing. So that was quite good. Yeah. Taylor Brusky asks, a lot of people want to become editors, but very few make it to your level. What advice does he have for people early in their careers who want to stand out amongst the competition and become successful editors? The main thing for me was watching lots of films <laughs> and lots of TV shows and kind of uh, thinking about maybe afterwards if you really enjoy it. Because I, I find I watch a show and if I'm really into it, I don't even think about the editing until afterwards. I go, oh, actually, <laughs> that was really good. But so I would say that. I think you have to be uh, very uh, diplomatic as well because it's a collaboration of people all with different ideas. I always say the director to me is the person that I'll answer to and everything will go 
through him or her. There's so many uh, opinions coming. You've got to be uh, a diplomat as well as uh, an editor. I think also um, reading books has helped me a lot because of, I don't know, it's construction of uh, a story, really. I think that's uh, part of being a successful editor is is having that judgment. It's basically knowing when something's going on for too long Mm -hmm. or not long enough. (laughs) So, which is, it's not really something that you can learn, I think. Well, you can kind of get an idea of it by watching films and reading books and, you know, anything story-based. My advice is that you do try to edit. You find something that you can edit, even if, you know, like I just shot while we were on quarantine, uh, I shot a short horror film in my house with my family, you know, and even though I've edited, you know, feature films that have been on the big screen, I still like learned something like, oh man, I, I needed to, yeah, yeah. I needed more time there or I needed this, this shot that's missing. Yeah. I think another thing that is probably a good thing to do is to take a film and make a trailer that tells the story or say make a teaser mm-hmm. uh, in set yourself a time for it say it's got to last for two minutes because I learned a lot of uh, storytelling on commercials because you had like 30 or 40 seconds uh, and you had to tell the story in that time and it was so it was very uh, strict you couldn't go a frame over <laughs> trying to cut something down from a or even not it doesn't have to be a whole movie it could be like a, a half hour tv program or something get that load it into your uh, final cut pro or whatever and do a cut down of it mm-hmm. that's always quite a good exercise to do you get a bit disciplined in that way also storytelling um the other thing is um, about music as well because i think editing is quite musical if, if you're a fan of music, you'll kind of, you kind of understand about rhythm. And... I want to kind of explore that idea creatively because some people might misunderstand, and maybe that's, this is what you're saying, but not only do you need to understand how music works in the episode or how you might use music, but that the picture cut itself is musical. That's what I mean, yeah. It's a rhythm thing. So uh, maybe what I'm trying to say is that even if the scene hasn't got music on it, it still has a rhythm to it, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a way of saying that it takes you along with the ride, if you know what I mean. If it's, I mean, sometimes you can do it, it's like a music track that's on the offbeat or something on purpose Mm -hmm. to make you feel, you know, what's going on kind of thing. But that's another type of rhythm. So it's all got, it's all about rhythm, I think. Uh, while we're kind of talking about this idea, you mentioned your assistant editor. The way that you would get to your position is that you most often work your way up as an assistant. Yeah. What are some of those things as an assistant that you look for or realize that that person is ready to move into your chair? Well, when they're uh, comfortable uh, cutting scenes on their own. Steph, in fact, has moved up. She's editing now. But I used to give her... Uh, sometimes you, you you just can't because the, this, either the assistant's too busy because they have so much uh, to do. But I'd try and give them scenes to cut just to see how, how they are. Another good indicator is how good they are at putting sound. That was another thing that Steph was great at. I'd often give her... A scene and say could you finish that off and put you know the sound on it it doesn't sound like a, a very creative job but it really is I, I mean we've just talked about how important the sound is so if the assistant is good at that they're going to move on it's not just about editing the scene talk to me a little bit about notes and the the process of revision from that first cut either from your standpoint or from when you're trying to help staff or an assistant it's not just cutting the scene, it's taking the criticism of what's wrong or how you want to direct yeah. the scene. Uh, what do you mean? Do you mean notes from me? You were talking about being a diplomat. How do you deal with the director saying, oh man, I, why didn't you start on a close-up? Or are you sure that's the best take? That one always kills me. I'm like, that's, I oh, chose yeah, that yeah. take because no, I, I thought it was the best take. <laughs> I know. <laughs> right. It, it, it's a matter of opinion, but yes, I chose it because that's what I think. Normally, there's a reason why I'd choose it. So I'd just say, well, I, uh, I chose it because of that. And sometimes they'd go, oh, right, okay. Can we try my one 
and then uh, if you have a go at that, and then, I mean, a lot of times it can be uh, negligible the difference uh, because of the rest of the scene. It's something that you know. I don't think you can hold to your heart. You know, you can't say it's not a hill to die on. Really, for me, if they really want to use another take, then that's fine. And also, sometimes the director's got a, a vision of how a scene should be going. You know, the overall look of it. You know, I'm the first one to say I might have missed that that little look there that you wanted that wasn't in this take has made this scene different. It's not just diplomatic, it's just, it's having a, a bit of humility as well as saying, right, okay, fine, yeah. Yeah, that's one of my big things as an editor is ego. You have to set your ego aside. Always got to be ready and open to sort of go, actually, that is really good. Right. And the other idea is even bad ideas sometimes lead you to good outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Well, and happy accidents as well, but, you know. I know that's always another good thing. It's being ready to accept those as well. One of the things you mentioned was about um, directors that you always feel like, hey, the director's the guy. Um, is that a difference between UK TV and American TV? Because eventually in, in the United States, the director's really kind of a hired gun that's only there for a couple of days maybe. I must say that was uh, quite an eye-opener to me when I first started on Game of Thrones. The only close to American uh, show I got was uh, that was called House of Saddam, which was an HBO and BBC co-production. Although it was, uh, it was American, part finance, it was run in the British way, you know, the director would stay on until the end. Yeah, it was a bit of an eye-opener for me to see the director have eight days <laughs> and then they're gone. And then you're switching over to the showrunner. But that's yeah. not the way Game of uh, Thrones worked? Not really. Uh, you had Frank Dolger, who's an exec producer, but he was uh, also um, uh, in charge of all the post-production. So the director would go. The, before he went, he'd present his cut, obviously, and Frank uh, would come and he would come in the cutting room after the director had gone and work on it some more before handing it over to David and Dan, the showrunners. Frank was also a lovely man and really knowledgeable about post-production. So he didn't go, oh, God, you know, here he comes. He doesn't know anything about editing, but he he's, knows it inside out. He's been on, he was on the show from day one, so he knew the whole show. When he's looking at your episode, he's not just looking at your that episode. He's, he's looking at with other episodes in mind as well and what happened before after and some of his requests for cuts you might go well that why is that then and then it's oh yeah because in season four this happened mm -hmm. so he's looking at the macro level yeah so he he would do his cut and then it would then go to uh david and dan and they would dissect it and have there'd be more notes from other executives and Things like that. So it was quite. That was quite a long process as well. Is that all part of the seven months you were talking about, or an addition? Yeah, that's all part of it. It's another thing why it's quite long because of the. They're obviously giving notes on other episodes that are happening as well. So uh, sometimes you wouldn't get them back straight away. What kind of collaboration did you do with the other editors on the show? Were you guys just chatting? Was there there was there any sharing? Yeah, occasionally. Uh, not not a huge amount, but um, occasionally we would have a look at scenes or even an episode. Katie might come in and have a look if we wanted to. Maybe it was the director as well would say, you know, let's have a fresh eye on something. Uh, we would chat, but not a huge amount. Unless there are things that you needed to know that like a, a scene, an outgoing scene might carry on into the next episode that they might be doing. Then, of course, we'd have discussions about the transitions would work and, you know, make sure that everything would flow from one episode to another. So we would talk about that, but uh, not all the time. When you're cutting a scene that is got that nice build up, like the beginning, I'm going to go back to a scene that I just saw, which was that scene one, the beginning scene from a Winterfell. Yeah. How do you know when you're building that and there's, it's just kind of, 
shots and moments and there's not dialogue that you can base your pacing off of and there's not action that you pay. It's kind of like looks and lots of shots that don't even seem scripted. How do you know yeah. how long that should go? <laughs> how do you know that that should be <laughs> six minutes or two minutes? To me, that's an instinctual thing. And also, you sometimes with that, you don't really find out until you've built, not necessarily the whole episode, but until you've built some other scenes around it. I don't think you can ever tell. Funnily enough, I think that was the first scene that I had, the first scene they shot, scene one, <laughs> which is weird. That is strange. <laughs> but, um, so I didn't really have, I would obviously have the script, so I knew, you know, I knew what, was going to be happening but I think you need other scenes around it to know ultimately how long it or short it should be but I think really you go on uh, oh well, I do I just go on instinct at first make the narrative work make sure the story and the heart of the scene is there so you understand what it's about and I'll put that together first, and then then I'll look at it. And even then, you might go, well, "This is too long. You don't need all this explanation, uh, really." So I will then I'll keep that as the long version, and then I'll chip away at it a bit, and make it a bit more streamlined, and then I'll probably leave it until I've got more scenes around it, and then look at it again and go, "Actually, that scene goes on," which <laughs> in fact is what happened. Because there, there was so much footage for that scene, as you can imagine. There was so many shots, so many characters involved in it. But when we put it together in the car, it was way too long, miles too long. But you need something, you need a basis to... I remember cutting a, an action scene that, as I was cutting it and feeling good about cutting it as its own little thing, it was 12 minutes long. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's a pretty good action scene. And then you, you see it in the context of the story and you're That's like, right. uh, yeah. it needs to be two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Talk to me about doing something like that. That 12 minute cut is still useful. It's still a valuable yeah, exercise. Because you may, you may um, as you probably know, that you know these things, they change all the time. The more you're getting in and the more people are in, more input you're getting as well, especially when the director comes in the room with you. The scenes can lengthen and shorten and all sorts. So, But if you've got that original long 12-minute piece or however long it is, uh, there might be pieces in that. Somebody will say, well, I'm not quite sure what they're doing over there. And then I go, oh, hang on. If I look back at my original cut, there was a little piece in it that explains what they do so maybe not just take it out and put it in because obviously you'd have to you know make it work but uh, take that idea of explanation and then so the, I'm all, always doing that going back to original things and not you know just taking pieces out of it I don't mean this in a bad way because I think that opening scene was beautifully paced but you could have cut that in half yeah. easily if if you'd said, "Oh, the episode ran if, two minutes long." Yeah, if they just said, "Right, we need to," that scene was it was cut down quite considerably from from what it was. But uh, yeah, if they just said, uh, "We need another two minutes out," you could have taken more out. Yeah, you, it would hurt because there were lovely moments, and like you said, yeah. the pacing. It's all about. It's all about the build, isn't it? So I think if that especially as it's the opening scene of the new season, you know, we kind of felt, you want to take it in. Right, the fans, right, you're, you've are you got a watch party yeah, or something, all, and the fans are like, oh, my gosh. Maybe if it had been too fast, people would have felt a bit shortchanged, I think. Yeah, absolutely. But it all looked great anyway. <laughs> oh, no, it looked fantastic, absolutely. How do you have your uh, assistants organize your material for you when you get rushes in? It's fairly straightforward. I just have each scene put in a, a bin. I have tiles. I don't have, um, you know, I have the, the shot and I, I get them to roll it on to the first recognisable piece of action. So sometimes, uh, you know, if you get an assistant who doesn't really know, they'll just move it past the clapperboard and that might be just a shot of the door. So you're talking about the thumbnails, the thumbnails in the bin. Yeah, the th yeah, yeah. So I can see... So I've got a, a bin up and I can see each shot and they put the take, uh, slate and take underneath scene number, episode number, blah, blah, underneath it in type. Uh, but then I can see each shot 
and each take of each each setup of camera and whether it's a grouped because sometimes it's three cameras so that I know that there's other cameras in there you can't see them on the screen but uh, and large enough so I can see them <laughs> In your process of approaching a blank timeline for a scene like uh, that opening scene, for example, do you do selects reels or do you just start? I don't. I take the scene bin. I sit and watch all, all the rushes. As I'm watching them, I might uh, put a marker on the tile, um, a locator, and just say, good bit or <laughs> nice reaction, whatever. Uh, but as I'm going, I see, I'll see things that might be quite nice, uh, just so that I know where they are. and I, Or I might write them on the continuity reports uh, that the script supervisor sends, uh, which I also have next to me, uh, you know, because she'll give good, she or he or she will give good information about how those scenes and if the director had any comments as well. So I can just add, I add my own comments to those as well. And then uh, once I've seen them all, then I'll cut that scene because it's fresh in my mind. Some people watch all the rushes of the day first, but I can't wait to start cutting. So uh, <laughs> so I'll, I'll watch a scene and then I'll cut that scene and then I'll move on to the next one. How do you wrap your brain around that much footage before you start cutting? It's scary sometimes. <laughs> and you go, what am I going to do? Where you sort of sit and look at the screen and how much there is and you go, Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> then you go, right, well, I've got to start somewhere. So I'm going to, that is, you know, and also um, they shoot many different openings to a scene. So you could start with any of them. So you've got to, right, the first thing I'm going to do is decide which of those eight openings I'm going to have to start it with. So I'm going to start with that one, right? And that sets me off. Even though halfway through the scene, and this has happened to me before, halfway through the scene I'll go, this is rubbish. <laughs> I'll chuck it away and I'll start with one of the other choices. And then if I'm into it and if, it, if it's flowing, if it's all happening, then that's, that must be good to me anyway. <laughs> of course, you, you know, then once you've got a skeleton of the scene and you go back and embellish. I was struck watching that. I'm like, that's the... Like, it's got to be the shot that that scene starts with, which, of course, it doesn't, yeah. right? <laughs> it was like a boy running through a creek, past a creek, or yeah, he trying to remember what the first shot was. I see river, doesn't he? He jumps. Uh, it's quite nice. But you had multiple choices for that yeah. opening shot. Yeah. But then if you start from that point, then that that leads you, choosing that first shot leads you in a different direction. That's how it works for me, yeah. It, it, it's sort of, uh, I'll go with it. And that's the instinctual thing, I think, you know, where you just kind of go with the flow and then, you know, there's points where you go, that isn't right. It's just not right. So I'll just go back and work something around it or do something else. But once you've started, it's not so scary. <laughs> One of the reasons why I like to do these interviews is because everybody's got a different process. And so... Yeah, um, yeah I'm sure, yeah. For me, I, I am a select real kind of guy because I need to condense the amount of massive material yeah. so that I can think about it better. And lots of people are really good at remembering 90 minutes of material that might be for a scene or more, two hours yeah. or something. Yeah. I need to get it so it's like 25 minutes. Yeah. Like, okay, I can get my I head around. I've watched the 25 well. minutes best material. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, everybody's got a different but process. I, the way I do it is just with my little markers and, my, and, I, and I remind myself with the continuity notes sometimes, you know, go, oh yeah, right. And then uh, also I like, which we could never do on film, was is whizzing through, grabbing the... Uh, the timeline the, cursor. The cursor yeah, and just, just scrolling through really fast, backwards and forwards and going, oh yeah, yeah, I can remember that part, yeah, that bit. But that's just the way I do it. There's no real right or wrong way there, is there? Absolutely. And have you have you ever changed your style, or do you do you keep a, an approach that's fairly similar through your career? It's probably I would say it hasn't really changed. The, the only time I've changed it is when there's been better. The tools have got better, you know. Like for instance, the dragging back and forwards, which you could never really do with with uh, film, but I'm not so worried about doing so many versions anymore because you couldn't do versions on film, not 
easily. You know, you had to undo and unpick joins and things like that. So it's a, but now uh, you can try things out that may be rubbish, but you can. It's e- easier to try them. And so that they're the only things that really. But my, you know, main approach to it has not really changed. You mentioned the continuity notes. How much? Do you pay attention to them before you start cutting? Do you read them or do you wait until you've got a cut and then you go back and look? Uh, no, I read them uh, before. I will look at the rushes first and that's when I read them. So I'll look at uh, what the continuity says about a slate, then I'll watch them. I don't really go back to them after I cut it, unless it's for some sort of technical reason or if there was a, a particular director's note maybe on there. But um it's mainly while I'm watching the rushes is when I pay attention to them. And when you're joining scene to scene, like you've cut scene one, 23, 19, they're all different, right? They're all coming in at different times. When you join them, what are some of the things that you're looking at at those joins of scenes? So it doesn't bump. When, so you don't go, oh, this is another scene. Unless it's... Uh, meant to do that. Transitions are all important because you need to feel like you're going along with the story. So sometimes, um, say I've got um, 10 scenes that are all different and then as they start coming together, when you get more and more scenes around them, that first shot that I was talking about agonising over to start a scene, you might go, oh, actually, now I've joined it onto the scene before it, now that's cut. It doesn't work, so I'm going to go back and look at those alternative openings of that scene. And you might have to adjust the first few cuts all the other way around, the end of the scene before. Do you know what I mean? So uh, yeah. so it can be handy that they did those eight different versions of the opening <laughs> <laughs> because of the transitions. So uh, that's what I look for, make, making sure you, you're not... Um, it's not obviously a transition, it's not a... One scene ends, another one starts. You should take one. I seem to remember in that Winterfell episode at least one pre-lap. Like that's, yeah. another, that's one of those ways that kind of helps yeah, I mean, transition those, a scene. They do, they do help sometimes, don't they? As long as you don't do them every time, no. right? You <laughs> want to have some variety. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, I, I could talk to you all day, but I don't want to uh, impose on your time anymore. Thank you so much for talking to us I about uh, Game of it's Thrones. And, it's and enjoyable. It. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 250 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Crispin Green, ACE. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally... Be sure to share it with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.